My intention in writing this film was for it to be an authentic global story on human trafficking. And to do that, there really can't be a hero rescuer. That's not the truth of human trafficking. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. That's the text of the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, an amendment that was passed by Congress on January 31, 1865, and ratified by the states on December 6 of that same year. Unfortunately, 151 years later, slavery does exist in the United States, and everywhere else across the globe for that matter. Of course, it's an underground phenomenon, a fact that makes its vast scale that much more difficult to comprehend. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we'll be speaking with HKS adjunct lecturer Siddharth Kara, the writer and producer of the forthcoming feature film, Trafficked. The film traces the journeys of three teenage girls from different parts of the world as they're pulled into the international sex trade. They're bought, sold, and shipped around the globe like a commodity before ending up in a Texas brothel where they witness and withstand just about every horrible thing a human could do to another. Although not a documentary, Trafficked pulls heavily from the real stories of girls Kara has come across through decades of research on the global sex trade. So, uh, well, thank you for, for coming and joining us yeah, today. Pleasure. This seems like an enormous, enormous problem, and it seems like it's something that kind of happens under our noses. Um, can you talk about uh, your research and what you found about uh, human trafficking and sex slavery in general? Uh, I have been researching human trafficking, uh, contemporary forms of slavery and child labor uh, around the world for more than 16 years now, and have documented several thousand cases of slavery of all kinds in uh, numerous sectors uh, linked into the global economy. Uh, it is incontrovertible that the size and scale of this human rights uh, uh, abuse is significant. Uh, there are anywhere between 21 to 45 million slaves in the world today, um, and just about no country is immune, so you can find slaves almost anywhere in the world toiling in numerous sectors. Uh, and these slaves generate profits that exceed $150 billion per year for their exploiters. So on the one hand, slavery and human trafficking, of course, are nothing new. Uh, this has been a part of human civilization since the beginning, vulnerable people being trafficked and preyed upon and exploited in servitude. What's different in the modern context is, of course, it is uh, much easier, quicker, and cheaper to move people from point A to point B all around the world, and they can be exploited more profitably in any number of sectors, uh, the most profitable of which is, of course, uh, sex slavery, trafficking for forced prostitution which generates immense profits, at least $100 billion per year. Uh, and that number alone tells you why criminals are interested in getting involved in uh, trafficking for forced prostitution. Now, these numbers, how, I mean, uh, this is all underground activity. That's a wide range from 21 to 45 million uh, people who are currently enslaved, although that's across all uh, human trafficking, not just sex slavery, I understand. Correct, yes. That, that's all forms of slavery. Um, how, do, how do you count that? <laughs> yeah, well... It's not as easy as just, you know, walking down the street and pointing to slave, 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 
Uh, there's three. Uh, no, it is uh, oftentimes a, a clandestine offense uh, taking place behind closed doors or uh, in circumstances where you can't just go in and start sampling and conducting interviews. Uh, having said that, it, it is also often taking place in broad daylight, right under our noses, uh, which is another issue that we can and should address in this conversation. But um, it is challenging to gather data on slavery. Uh, that said, uh, many researchers, uh, not enough, but many have been making efforts to uh, gather data to get a sense of the scale and the scope. Um, that's why there is a bit of a range, 21 to 45, 46 million, depends on what definitions you use, uh, and of course, uh, what assumptions you make to extrapolate uh, on some basic data set. Um, uh, so it is hard information to gather, uh, but we do have a good sense now, um, several years into uh, efforts to research modern slavery, uh, of the kind of profits that are generated and the rough sense of scale of how many people are ensnared in servitude around the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll get into the film in a little bit, but there was one thing that I noticed uh, throughout the film uh, was that the uh, demand side of things, the Johns in the story, uh, they were all very aware that these women were clearly being held uh, against their will. Um, is that the kind of picture of, is it all people who understand they're involved with something extremely nefarious or is it... Uh, a little bit harder to see. I think the issue is nuanced. So if you frame slavery in terms of supply and demand, uh, then of course it's very easy to assess what is the supply of potential slaves. These are people who are vulnerable, impoverished, uh, displaced, um, belonging to minority ethnic groups, females, uh, uh, populations that are disempowered and oppressed and impoverished in many parts of the world and, of course, are vulnerable to being enslaved and trafficked. The demand side, which you've touched upon, um, is a little more uh, economically oriented in that uh, there's, of course, demand by the exploiters to maximize profit. That's the essential economic logic of slavery, strip out labor costs in order to boost profitability. Um, and in the case of sex trafficking in particular, you've got an additional element of demand that you've touched on, which is the male demand to consume women and girls and boys for commercial sex. The question is, how aware are they? Uh, and I think in my experience, and, and the film tries to portray some of this nuance, though it's, it is complicated, many of them uh, are aware uh, and this is, in fact, a facet that is appealing to them, uh, the degradation, the purchasing of a human being uh, to do what you will with that person uh, is, is a facet of the, of the demand of some men who are involved in the purchase of commercial sex. But other men aren't necessarily aware because they, frankly, aren't interested in being aware. Uh, these, these lines between willing and coerced can often be very blurry uh, and very complicated. Say you have a 25-year-old working in the commercial sex sector. Well, maybe she started when she was 14. Maybe she was trafficked and forced and raped 10,000 times between the age of 14 to 18. Well, is she really making a choice at the age of 22 or 24 or 25 uh, when she encounters that John? Uh, I would argue, no, I don't think it's a choice of uh, pure free will though, in the way you and I would think about it. Uh, but so the question of choice uh, and how aware is the male who's consuming this woman or girl or child uh, uh, really clued into the state of oppression and, in, in fact, sometimes outright slavery 
that they may be in. Uh, I think most of them are willingly ignorant of it. Uh, those who are aware of it uh, find that appealing. Uh, and some are just completely clueless to the entire f- concept that there's elements of duress, coercion, or servitude involved. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that this is something that happens under our noses. It, are there ways that people kind of support this industry even indirectly? Well, uh, so there's a two-part answer to that question. Uh, are people willingly or un- unwittingly supporting contemporary slavery? Um, when we talk about slavery in the production of things we buy every day, like our shirts, our food, our cell phones, uh, our granite countertops, our jewelry, our sporting goods, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, then we do very much so unwittingly contribute to slavery. Um, Most people who buy a shirt uh, or a seafood, all-you-can-eat shrimp buffet aren't really aware that there's a pretty decent chance, uh, especially when they're operating at the low end of the retail spectrum, uh, there's a pretty decent chance that there's some sort of forced labor, coerced labor, labor exploitation, child labor, or outright slavery involved in the production of that commodity that they're consuming. Uh, I think most consumers would like to be aware Uh, And companies and governments have an obligation to help them be aware that these supply chains are tainted. Um, But they are, by and large, unwitting contributors. On the sex side, the question is a little different. Um, You, me, most men do not purchase commercial sex. Um, However, a certain percent of the population does. So they are clearly directly contributing. But what about just you and I and our family members? Um, Are we contributing in some way? I think the answer to that question, uh, again, requires a little bit of nuance. So, so long as we contribute to or support or are apathetic to a society that allows this type of activity to take place, I think we're not engaging in our civic and moral obligations to rid our society, our communities, our neighborhoods uh, of sexual servitude and suffering of women and children. If we're not keeping our eyes out for indicators and signs uh, or even informed as to what those indicators and signs are, uh, we can't expect that law enforcement is going to be able to be everywhere at all times. And I think we all have an obligation in our societies and communities uh, to ensure uh, that slavery isn't taking place um, in and around where we live. We could be business owners running a hotel and just not really interested in what might be happening in that hotel. So there's any number of ways in which we might be sort of secondary or tertiary contributors uh, unwittingly to the system that allows slavery and and oppression of women and girls and their sexual exploitation to take place. I think it's 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 easier for those of us in the Western world, at least, uh, to see slavery as something that might be happening in uh, in Thailand or in Bangladesh, uh, especially in terms of downstream and the production of goods, as you mentioned. But uh, it's very much something that is happening here, here in the United States, uh, here in Boston. You mentioned signs to look out for, the, being educated about that. What what would you look out for? What would you tell people to be talking about? Well, uh, first and foremost, let's be clear about one incontrovertible truth. Slavery is taking place in the United States today. Uh, It is, as you say, not just a problem in Cambodia or Nepal or Moldova uh, or the developing world. Uh, It is taking place in the United States today 
150 plus years after the 13th Amendment uh, abolition of slavery. Uh, and that's something we need to come to terms with, reconcile, and then make sure we address uh, uh, with sufficient resources and robust intention so that that work of Lincoln and the abolitionists and the 13th Amendment is finally put to rest. Uh, that is, there are slaves who are involved in the agricultural sector. I've documented many, many hundreds of slaves in the agricultural sector in this country. They're involved in construction, domestic servitude, and of course, forced prostitution. Not just foreign migrants or foreigners trafficked into this country, but U.S. citizens as well. And that's one of the storylines my film touches on, uh, is a young girl in the foster care system who's mm -hmm. trafficked out of the foster care system um, uh, in this country. Uh, so what are the signs and indicators? Well, uh, you can't expect the average person to go out into the Central Valley of California or agricultural fields in Florida or North Carolina and look for signs and indicators of slavery in uh, um, avocado farming or strawberry farms or nut farms, etc. Uh, researchers, uh, labor inspectors uh, are, are the ones that need to really go about doing that or, you know, citizen activists and NGOs. But um, uh, uh, Migrants who are uh, trucked to and from the workplace uh, aren't really allowed to leave the dorms or barracks that they're living in. Uh, you've got to uncover what are the conditions and the wages they're being paid, etc. And you, you can dive into um, uh, whether they're being exploited and slaves. But let's look at something that might be happening in your community, maybe a domestic servant, a construction uh, slave, or, of course, uh, a sex slave. Um, are people, uh, are these individuals, by and large, uh, behind closed doors? Do they speak the language? Do they seem to be fearful? Do they have their own identity documents? Um, do they show up in ERs with serious injuries? Um, there are things that you can keep your eyes out for. Uh, do you see children on the street, someone that looks like a child, um, uh, being, uh, you know, soliciting for commercial sex? Uh, we often just kind of look the other way or don't pay attention uh, or don't even uh, question or scrutinize what's happening uh, when we see uh, someone who might even look like they're 18, 19, or 20 uh, on the streets or in a hotel lobby. Uh, but if you actually do dig a little deeper, uh, you might find that they're being uh, exploited as sex slaves. So I think it's just sort of cluing in, keeping your eyes out, being a part of sort of community vigilance that you can tell this doesn't look right. Uh, something's not right here. Uh, and then you need to report that to local NGOs or law enforcement so that they can, of course, dive deeper into establishing whether it is a case of trafficking or not. Mm -hmm. In your book, uh, you mentioned that sometimes you would pose as a John to uh, actually access and, and speak to some of these women. Um, obviously, that brings along with it a tremendous number of ethical implications in terms of, you know, how do you, do you, you know, do you report um, what's going on to try and, and save the people that you've spoken to? Um, but you've also said that uh, oftentimes that's not the right thing to do because of the corruption in the authorities, that if you go to the authorities, it might bring more pain upon upon the people you've spoken to. Um, how, how can a, a just a normal person, you know, they see somebody on the street uh, soliciting uh, for for s prostitution, uh, how can they be sure that they're actually helping rather than potentially making things worse for this person? So doing research into any kind of slavery, and in particular into sex trafficking and trafficking of minors uh, especially, um, is perilous. 
uh, it can be a little bit uh, dangerous and, of course, is um, fraught with many ethical challenges uh, and questions. And I think the overall guiding principle has to be do no harm. Um, avoid taking any steps uh, that could lead to uh, unintended negative consequences for the person you're trying to document and, of course, their family members. So what does the average person do? Uh, I mean, we have in the human rights world guidelines and principles that we try to follow as much as possible when doing this research. It's not always possible. Uh, and then judgments have to be made. But what does the average person do? I think the first thing to do is switch the mindset. Uh, we often look at migrant populations, um, uh, women working in commercial sex, uh, with sort of a negative lens on our eyes. Uh, and don't see them as potential victims, but maybe as offenders, offenders of migration laws, offenders of labor laws, offender, offenders of anti-prostitution laws. Uh, and as a result, just look the other way. And I think the first step is switch the mindset. Believe me, few people are desperately trying to enter this country uh, to end up in slavery. Um, that's not their chosen path. And if they're here, it's often because of duress or uh, exigencies that you and I can't understand, immense poverty, fleeing violence. Um, and if a young woman is at a street corner or in a hotel lobby or posted on the internet, Boy, I have to say, almost always there's going to be duress, coercion, or outright, outright servitude involved. Um, uh, so I think the first step is switching the mindset. Uh, that Let me at least approach this from the standpoint that this could be a potential victim. Now, what do you do then? What do you do? What do you do if you're, uh, you come across something that looks a little funny? You're driving around... Um, um, downtown Boston uh, or you're in, at Harvard Square and you just see some young people that look like they're homeless, look like they may be um, uh, young women um, who could be soliciting. Uh, uh, don't go intervening unless you're trained to do so. Uh, I think you've got to uh, report, uh, at least in this country, you can reliably report to law enforcement. Boston PD, for example, has a human trafficking unit. They're, they're uh, well-trained. Uh, at working through these types of cases, uh, or local NGOs that focus on trafficking, have shelters, um, have caseworkers that can get involved. Uh, that's the most important thing, uh, is to know who you can refer a case to. Uh, and it could be that um, that simple act mm -hmm. of being alert, seeing something that looks amiss, and reporting it to local uh, police uh, or an, a, a human trafficking NGO could mean the difference between uh, slavery and freedom for someone. Mm -hmm. uh, now, in other parts of the world where law enforcement could be more corrupt, judicial systems could be more corrupt, or there might not even be an NGO <laughs> with a shelter that is nearby that you can trust, of course, then it becomes really uh, much more challenging uh, to be a citizen activist because you don't want to uh, just... Uh, follow your maybe emotional impulse to, to intervene. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to talk about the, the film itself. So the film Trafficked, uh, I got to see it last week at a screening here at Harvard, and uh, it's an incredible film. It's As I watched it, uh, I couldn't but help um, to notice the absence of a narrative device that I think uh, we've come to expect in most... Hollywood feature films, and that is the the hero. 
Uh, and I realized as I was thinking that um, that uh, I was hoping that there would be a side story of you know the families diligently working to rescue these these young women or something like that. But then it occurred to me that that film already exists. In fact, there are three of them: Taken, One, Two, and Three. And uh, it was jarring for me because uh, it made me realize just how much having those hero characters uh, can detract from the fierce urgency of the problem. I wonder if, was that a conscious choice? And how did that go in terms of uh, your process for writing the film? Well, I'm pleased to know that you were moved by the film. That's, of course, the intention to to, to really um, move people and, and hopefully motivate them to be involved in uh, combating human trafficking in some way, big or small. Um, my intention in writing this film and getting it made was for it to be uh, a, an authentic global story on human trafficking. Uh, and uh, th- I, I hope I've accomplished that goal. Uh, and to do that, uh, there really can't be a hero rescuer. That's not the truth of human trafficking. Um, there are courageous activists out there who are working to um, liberate slaves and, and re-empower them. Um, but by and large, that's not the truth. Um, the truth of the matter is most slaves perish as slaves. Uh, most slaves uh, have very short, nasty, brutish, short lives, to quote a famous philosopher. Um, uh, so if there's going to be a hero in this film, and the, and the true heroes I've encountered around the world are the slaves themselves. Those who retain the strength uh, and the dignity uh, and the will to be free to try to find some way. And, and, and the sad truth is the majority are not successful. There are just too many forces of oppression, violence, degradation, and a lack of assistance for them to be successful. Uh, and that's why this film has a mixed ending. Uh, but there was not going to be a great rescuer story uh, when I get to tell a story about human trafficking, because that's not the truth. Uh, the truth is the, the great heroes are the slaves themselves, and you see that in the film with the, the three young, young women uh, who, uh, not by themselves, but together, collectively, um, muster the, sh- the inner strength uh, to try to find some way to reclaim their dignity and freedom. And that's the truth of human trafficking, and that's who the true, sh- the true heroes are, and, and that's the story that needed to be told. It's not often that we have a faculty member who has written a Hollywood feature film that is, uh, you know, come to actually be produced. I, I don't know how many have actually done it in the past, but this is our first on this show, at least. Uh, can you talk about that that approach in general? I mean, what what caused you? To th- you know, you wrote a book before, uh, which is a very common thing, um, but to take that next step and try to uh, create a piece of art uh, about this subject. Right. Well, I think uh, in many ways I'm probably not the common faculty member, um, uh, and this is one of them. So, uh, you know, my 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 path to this to this world was kind of winding, uh, uh, and I think that's how it had to be, and that's what sort of brought me to this point. I, of course, uh, don't have a background. Uh, you know, I don't have a PhD. I didn't have a background in human human rights research. I I volunteered in a refugee camp in the former Yugoslavia in the early 90s and was moved and haunted by stories of trafficking and rape camps that I that I heard at that time as a youngster, as an undergrad, uh, and just 
made a choice at a certain point in my life that uh, I needed to make a broader contribution, or at least try to. Uh, so 16 and a half years ago, I started researching on this issue, just jumped into the field. Uh, and one thing led to another, and, and here I am. But I've written a few books, um, articles, and, uh, and reports and whatnot uh, based on the research I've done. When I sat down to write my first book, the book on sex trafficking, um, I had the intention at that time that uh, I would want to make a movie as well. So the book is my narrative journey into this world and arguments of what needs to be done about it, uh, what needs to be done to, to eradicate sex trafficking. Um, but no matter how well I write the book, uh, only so many people will read it. Only so many people will be in my class here at Harvard. Only so many people will you know, see me doing interviews now and again or come to talks. But millions of people see movies. Uh, and movie and film and media has a power that if wielded, uh, I think, um, uh, responsibly and, uh, and effectively can really disseminate a message in a way that no other uh, tool can. Um, I mean, if you think of... There are many films, and we talked about this at the panel discussion after the film uh, screening, um, films like The Philadelphia, The Killing Fields. Um, uh, I mean, the list goes on and on of films that really captured a moment and changed our perceptions of either a historical tragedy uh, or a, a contemporary one. Uh, Blood Diamond, another great example of a film that really catalyzed a, an important uh, social movement. Um, so film has that power, to make a long story short. And I knew that if, if I could get it made, uh, it would be authentic, it would be truthful, uh, it would be the story that I think needs to be told and hasn't been told yet in terms of uh, feature films, um, and could have the potential to be a powerful catalyst for raising awareness, uh, generating new energy and interests, uh, uh, to be involved in efforts to, to tackle human trafficking, uh, and of course to raise resources to support many of the organizations and activists who are involved in this work. Did you encounter much of a, uh, a push and pull between you know, satisfying the narrative and the kind of artistic side uh, versus the reality of what's going on? Obviously, the characters are not real people. It's not a documentary. Um, how, do, how did you balance those? So the characters in the film, most everything that happens in the film and most everyone you see in the film is based on something real I've documented um, at some point in the last uh, decade and a half. Uh, that's what I meant by it, it should be truthful and authentic. Um, and it was very uh, moving for me to see the film, even though I know the whole story, because I know the young women whose voices, whose story is being told. Uh, and, and frankly, no one else does <laughs> but me. Uh, now, having said that, yes, you're right. Things have to be fictionalized uh, to tell a coherent story and in one hour and 45 minutes and mm -hmm. um, also make it interesting enough uh, and pacey enough to be a movie that people will want to make and, uh, and distribute, etc. The main tension for me uh, in trying to achieve my goals of a film that will be authentic and broadly seen was to find the very fine balance between uh, being truthful to the realities of sex trafficking, which are fairly dark, abhorrent, brutish, uh, and unbearable, um, uh, but remaining 
but making sure that the film would be something that people could see. Uh, uh, so if it goes too dark and too truthful, uh, frankly, no one, no one would be able to watch it, not even me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not necessary. You don't have to show torture and violence and rape to convey the message that these kinds of things happen to slaves. Um, but if you sanitize it too much, then it betrays the truth. So finding that balance was the hardest thing in writing it. And then, of course, you know, when it came time to shooting the film and editing the film, finding that balance. And, and I hope we found it. Um, uh, I mean, the film is meant to be hard hitting, uh, to shake people up and to open their eyes, but not so much so that, of course, they get turned off uh, and unable to really even go on the journey. I was particularly impressed by how complex it was clearly presented as and the number of different questions that it raised. Uh, For instance, uh, one of the young women was from Nigeria and, uh, quote unquote, chose to enter enter the trade using the word choice loosely, whereas you had uh, a woman in Northern California who was abducted right after she was dropped out of the foster care system. I imagine that those there, there are just a number of different inputs. Were there reasons why you chose those specific sources or ways into the trade to highlight? Uh, so no one story, no one young woman's story can capture... Uh, all the realities of sex trafficking because they are complex and they are nuanced and they are variegated. Uh, So I have three young women, uh, one from Nigeria, a peasant from Nigeria, uh, a young girl from India, and then the foster care girl in California. And the three of them, if if you sit back and follow their journeys and their responses to their journeys, uh, the three of them encapsulate pretty much the totality of what sex trafficking is in the world today. So the Nigerian young woman uh, uh, enters this world by quote-unquote choice. Of course, she herself comes to uh, challenge that concept for us and for the audience um, as an impoverished, distressed migrant. You know, she really doesn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. It's that or oblivion, starvation for her and her family. Uh, And that's the truth of millions of slaves around the world, including sex slaves, uh, that there really never was a choice uh, if they wanted to stay alive. Uh, And then she comes to accept that world as she must to survive it. Um, The foster care young woman was tricked. She was falsely recruited, told that she would have a job, uh, and she was tricked. Uh, And false recruitment. Uh, false offers of jobs or education or um, migration assistance are a, the second huge tool used to find new victims of trafficking and slavery. And then the third young girl in India was just flat out abducted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and slaves uh, can be just abducted. They're oftentimes just invisible people anyway, weren't registered at birth, don't exist. They're stateless or they're just that oppressed minority ethnicity that no one even cares about. And so when they go missing, who's even looking? Uh, so these are the three main ways that you can enter the world of slavery. And then as you follow these, the journeys of these young women and how they respond to it, um, uh, I feel they encapsulate much of, the, much of the truth of what sex trafficking is. Mm-hmm. I was also struck by the similarity between, or not just the similarity, but um, how closely the sex trafficking industry mirrored uh, the drug trade, as well as other kind of nefarious industries like uh, 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 
organ harvesting. Can you talk about that a little bit, the, especially the, the drug trade piece? They seem to be very tied together. So one of the things my research has uncovered is that around the world, uh, organized crime groups uh, are heavily involved in uh, human trafficking, drug trafficking, weapons trafficking, organ trafficking, uh, trafficking of pretty much all kinds. They have, to use business terms, already laid down the sunk cost of creating these networks. And so now they're thinking to themselves, well, what else can we sell across this network? We can do weapons, we can do drugs, we can do people, or we can do people in parts. Uh, and that's that's the truth of what human trafficking, drug, organ trafficking uh, is. And uh, it's very true uh, along the uh, southern border of this country. The cartels are involved in uh, drugs, uh, uh, organs, and human uh, trafficking for labor or sex um, because they've already set up the whole network. And, and the film, of course, focuses on sex trafficking, but it does touch on uh, drugs and organs as well. Mm-hmm. Perhaps a... a- large wall would uh, prevent that. No, I, I don't think so. I, I, I think the cartels are sufficiently sophisticated and well-resourced that they would just go under or around uh, any such wall without too much uh, fuss or hassle. Uh, that brings us back to the uh, the question of demand that uh, was discussed before. Um, it seems like in the community that is trying to fight uh, human trafficking, uh, or specifically sex trafficking, um, the targeting of demand is where a lot of the focus is right now. It, that's, that approach seems to share something in common with the uh, the war on drugs over the last 40 years or so, uh, in which, you know, there's been a real try to crack down on the users and therefore reduce demand. Um, is there evidence that there are ways to approach uh, sex trafficking on the demand side without having the kind of poor results that the war on drugs has had? Yeah, there is evidence, actually. Uh and, you know, this, this, this approach of focusing on the consumers, the demand side of the sex trafficking sector is not without debate. Uh, having said that, uh, I'm, I'm one of the people who feels it is the most effective way to tackle the issue. There's no perfect way, but mm-hmm. we have to say what's the most effective way. Uh, and I think it is the most effective way. And the fact of the matter is that uh, there is some evidence now from a handful of countries that have taken this approach, primarily Scandinavian countries, uh, and more and more are adopting the same approach, France most recently, uh, believe it or not, of uh, uh, enacting fairly strict penalties on the purchaser of women and children for commercial sex. And that could be financial penalties, prison time, naming and shaming uh, to their family and coworkers. Uh, and it seems to have a pretty significant dent on levels of demand and then as a result, levels of prostitution slash sex slavery uh, in these countries. Um, because the truth of the matter is, uh, most of the men engaged in buying women and children for sex don't want anyone else to know about it. Mm-hmm. And then you have to ask yourself, well, why is that the case? Why would, why would they not want anyone else to know about it? Well, because we reject it. For the most part, society rejects that as reasonable, decent, dignified, respectable behavior or respectful of women and children. Um, uh, if it were acceptable and uh, broadly acceptable and decent and dignified, then they wouldn't care. Uh, but there was a study here done in Boston by Demand Abolition, and the number one deterrent 
for avid sex buyers that would stop them in their tracks was if their family were told, their wives and kids, hmm. or mothers, uh, sisters, etc. So uh, I think that's a very effective way to think about making a dent in the industry, uh, particularly in the near term. In the long term, of course, you still have to address all the supply side issues, issues that make women and children vulnerable, poverty, gender violence, etc. Those issues must not be forgotten either. Well, Siddharth Kara, thank you so much for coming on PolicyCast today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Siddharth Kara is an adjunct lecturer here at Harvard Kennedy School. His film Trafficked is slated to be in theaters in early 2017. You can learn more about the work he and others are doing on human trafficking by visiting the website of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. We'll, as always, have a link in the show notes. HKS PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. It's produced by Matt Cadwallader, along with Natalie Montaner, Sarah Abrams, and Becky Wickle. Special thanks, as always, to Catherine Serafin for help for her help with distribution. You can follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast or find links to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week.